Chapters 39 and 40 of The Way of All Flesh. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rhonda Fetterman. The Way of All Flesh by Samuel Butler. Chapter 39. Ernest had been out all the morning, but came into the yard of the rectory from the spinney behind the house just as Ellen's things were being put into the carriage. He thought it was Ellen whom he then saw get into the carriage, but as her face had been hidden by her handkerchief, he had not been able to see plainly who it was, and dismissed the idea as improbable. He went to the back kitchen window, at which the cook was standing peeling potatoes for dinner, and found her crying bitterly. Ernest was much distressed, for he liked the cook, and of course wanted to know what all the matter was, who it was that had just gone off in the pony carriage, and why. The cook told him it was Ellen, but said that no earthly power should make it cross her lips why it was she was going away. When, however, Ernest took her au pied de la lettre, and asked no further questions, she told him all about it after extorting the most solemn promises of secrecy. It took Ernest some minutes to arrive at the facts of the case, but when he understood them, he leaned against the pump, which stood near the back kitchen window, and mingled his tears with the cook's. Then his blood began to boil within him. He did not see that, after all, his father and mother could have done much otherwise than they actually did. They might perhaps have been less precipitate, and tried to keep the matter a little more quiet but this would not have been easy, nor would it have mended things very materially. The bitter fact remains that if a girl does certain things, she must do them at her peril, no matter how young and pretty she is, nor to what temptation she has succumbed. This is the way of the world, and as yet there has been no help found for it. Ernest could only see what he gathered from the cook, namely, that his favorite, Ellen, was being turned adrift with a matter of three pounds in her pocket, to go she knew not where, and to do she knew not what, and that she had said she should hang or drown herself, which the boy implicitly believed she would. With greater promptitude than he had shown yet, he reckoned up his money and found he had two shillings and three pence at his command. There was his knife, which might sell for a shilling, and there was the silver watch his Aunt Alethea had given him shortly before she died. The carriage had been gone now a full quarter of an hour, and it must have got some distance ahead, but he would do his best to catch it up, and there were shortcuts which would perhaps give him a chance. He was off at once, and from the top of the hill, just past the rectory paddock, he could see the carriage looking very small, on a bit of road which showed perhaps a mile and a half in front of him. One of the most popular amusements at Roughborough was an institution called the Hounds, more commonly known elsewhere as Hare and Hounds. But in this case the Hare was a couple of boys who were called Foxes, and boys are so particular about correctness of nomenclature where their sports are concerned that I dare not say they played Hare and Hounds. These were the hounds, and that was all. Ernest's want of muscular strength did not tell against him here. There was no jostling up against boys who, though neither older nor taller than he, were yet more robustly built. 
If it came to mere endurance, he was as good as any one else. So when his carpentering was stopped, he had naturally taken to the hounds as his favorite amusement. His lungs thus exercised had become developed, and as a run of six or seven miles across country was not more than he was used to, he did not despair by the help of the shortcuts of overtaking the carriage, or at the worst of catching Ellen at the station before the train left. So he ran, and ran, and ran, till his first wind was gone, and his second came, and he could breathe more easily. Never with the hounds had he run so fast and with so few breaks as now, but with all his efforts and the help of the shortcuts, he did not catch up to the carriage, and would probably not have done so had not John happened to turn his head and see him running and making signs for the carriage to stop a quarter of a mile off. He was now about five miles from home and was nearly done up. He was crimson with his exertion, covered with dust, and with his trousers and coat sleeves a trifle short for him, he cut a poor figure enough as he thrust on Ellen his watch, his knife, and the little money he had. The one thing he implored of her was not to do those dreadful things which she threatened, for his sake, if for no other reason. Ellen at first would not hear of taking anything from him, but the coachman, who was from the North Country, sided with Ernest. "'Take it, my lass,' he said kindly. "'Take what thou can get whilst thou canst get it. As for Master Ernest here, he has run well after thee. Therefore let him give thee what he has minded.' Ellen did what she was told, and the two parted with many tears, the girl's last words being that she should never forget him, and that they should meet again hereafter. She was sure they would, and then she would repay him." Then Ernest got into a field by the roadside, flung himself on the grass, and waited under the shadow of a hedge till the carriage should pass on its return from the station and pick him up, for he was dead beat. Thoughts which had already occurred to him with some force now came more strongly before him, and he saw that he had got himself into one mess, or rather into half a dozen messes, the more. In the first place he should be late for dinner and this was one of the offences on which Theobald had no mercy. Also he should have to say where he had been, and there was a danger of being found out if he did not speak the truth. Not only this, but sooner or later it must come out that he was no longer in possession of the beautiful watch which his dear aunt had given him. And what, pray, had he done with it? Or how had he lost it? The reader will know very well what he ought to have done, he should have gone straight home, and if questioned, should have said, I have been running after the carriage to catch our housemaid Ellen, whom I am very fond of. I have given her my watch, my knife, and all my pocket money, so that I have now no pocket money at all, and shall probably ask you for some more sooner than I otherwise might have done, and you will also have to buy me a new watch and a knife. But then, fancy the consternation which such an announcement would have occasioned. Fancy the scowl and flashing eyes of the infuriated Theobald. "'You unprincipled young scoundrel!' he would exclaim. "'Do you mean to vilify your own parents by implying that they have dealt harshly by one whose profligacy has disgraced their house?' Or he might take it with one of those sallies of sarcastic calm of which he believed himself to be a master. 
"'Very well, Ernest, very well. I shall say nothing. You can please yourself. You are not yet twenty-one, but pray act as if you were your own master. Your poor aunt doubtless gave you the watch that you might fling it away upon the first improper character you came across. I think I can now understand, however, why she did not leave you her money.' and after all your godfather may just as well have it as the kind of people on whom you would lavish it if it were yours then his mother would burst into tears and implore him to repent and seek the things belonging to his peace while there was yet time by falling on his knees to theobald and assuring him of his unfailing love for him as the kindest and tenderest father in the universe ernest could do all this just as well as they could and now as he lay on the grass speeches some one or other of which was as certain to come as the sun to set kept running in his head till they confuted the idea of telling the truth by reducing it to an absurdity truth might be heroic but it was not within the range of practical domestic politics having settled that he was to tell a lie what lie should he tell should he say he had been robbed he had enough imagination to know that he had not enough imagination to carry him out here. Young as he was, his instinct told him that the best liar is he who makes the smallest amount of lying go the longest way, who husbands it too carefully to waste it where it can be dispensed with. The simplest course would be to say that he had lost the watch, and was late for dinner because he had been looking for it. He had been out for a long walk, he chose the line across the fields that he had actually taken, and the weather being very hot he had taken off his coat and waistcoat, and carrying them over his arm, his watch, his money, and his knife had dropped out of them. He had got nearly home when he found out his loss, and had run back as fast as he could, looking along the line he had followed, till at last he had given it up. Seeing the carriage coming back from the station, he had let it pick him up and bring him home this covered everything the running and all for his face still showed that he must have been running hard the only question was whether he had been seen about the rectory by any but the servants for a couple of hours or so before ellen had gone and this he was happy to believe was not the case for he had been out except during his few minutes interview with the cook his father had been out at the parish his mother had certainly not come across him and his brother and sister had also been out with the governess he knew he could depend upon the cook and the other servants. The coachman would see to this. On the whole, therefore, both he and the coachman thought the story as proposed by Ernest would about meet the requirements of the case. Chapter 40 When Ernest got home and sneaked in through the back door, he heard his father's voice in its angriest tones, inquiring whether Master Ernest had already returned. He felt as Jack must have felt in the story of Jack and the Beanstalk, when from the oven in which he was hidden he heard the ogre ask his wife what young children she had got for his supper, with much courage, and, as the event proved, with not less courage than discretion. He took the bull by the horns, and announced himself at once as having just come in after having met with a terrible misfortune. Little by little he told his story, and though Theobald stormed somewhat about his incredible folly and carelessness, he got off better than he expected. Theobald and Christina had indeed at first been inclined to connect his absence from dinner with Ellen's dismissal, but on finding it clear, as Theobald said, 
everything was always clear with Theobald. That Ernest had not been in the house all the morning, and could therefore have known nothing about what had happened, he was acquitted on this account for once in a way, without a stain upon his character. Perhaps Theobald was in a good temper. He may have seen from the paper that morning that his stocks had been rising. It may have been this or twenty other things, but whatever it was, he did not scold so much as Ernest had expected, and seeing the boy look exhausted and believing him to be much grieved at the loss of his watch, Theobald actually prescribed a glass of wine after his dinner, which, strange to say, did not choke him, but made him see things more cheerfully than was usual with him. That night when he said his prayers he inserted a few paragraphs to the effect that he might not be discovered, and that things might go well with Ellen, but he was anxious and ill at ease. His guilty conscience pointed out to him a score of weak places in his story, through any one of which detection might even yet easily enter. Next day and for many days afterwards he fled when no man was pursuing, and trembled each time he heard his father's voice calling for him. He already had so many causes of anxiety that he could stand little more, and in spite of all his endeavors to look cheerful, even his mother could see that something was preying on his mind. Then the idea returned to her that, after all, her son might not be innocent in the Ellen matter, and this was so interesting that she felt bound to get as near the truth as she could. "'Come here, my poor, pale-faced, heavy-eyed boy,' she said to him one day in her kindest manner. "'Come and sit down by me, and we will have a little quiet, confidential talk together, will we not?' The boy went mechanically to the sofa. Whenever his mother wanted what she called a confidential talk with him, she always selected the sofa as the most suitable ground on which to open her campaign. All mothers do this. The sofa is to them what the dining-room is to fathers. In the present case the sofa was particularly well adapted for a strategic purpose, being an old-fashioned one with a high back, mattress, bolsters, and cushions, once safely penned into one of its deep corners, it was like a dentist's chair, not too easy to get out of again. Here she could get at him better to pull him about, if this should seem desirable, or if she thought fit to cry she could bury her head into the sofa cushion and abandon herself to an agony of grief, which seldom failed of its effect. None of her favorite maneuvers were so easily adopted in her usual seat, the armchair on the right-hand side of the fireplace. And so well did her son know from his mother's tone that this was going to be a sofa conversation, that he took his place like a lamb as soon as she began to speak, and before she could reach the sofa herself. "'My dearest boy,' began his mother, taking hold of his hand and placing it within her own, "'promise me never to be afraid of either your dear papa or of me. Promise me this, my dear, as you love me, promise it to me.' and she kissed him again and again, and stroked his hair. But with her other hand she still kept hold of his. She had got him, and she meant to keep him. The lad hung down his head and promised. What else could he do? You know there is no one, dear, dear Ernest, who loves you so much as your papa and I do, no one who watches so carefully over your interests, or who is so anxious to enter into all your little joys and troubles, as we are. 
but my dearest boy it grieves me to think that sometimes you have not that perfect love for and confidence in us which you ought to have you know my darling that it would be as much our pleasure as our duty to watch over the development of your moral and spiritual nature but alas you will not let us see your moral and spiritual nature at times we are almost inclined to doubt whether you have a moral and spiritual nature at all of your inner life my dear we know nothing beyond such scraps as we can glean in spite of you from little things which escape you almost before you know that you have said them the boy winced at this it made him feel hot and uncomfortable all over he knew well how careful he ought to be and yet do what he could from time to time his forgetfulness of the part betrayed him into unreserve his mother saw that he winced and enjoyed the scratch she had given him had she felt less confident of victory she had better have foregone the pleasure of touching as it were the eyes at the end of a snail's horns in order to enjoy seeing the snail draw them in again but she knew that when she had got him well down into the sofa and held his hand she had the enemy almost absolutely at her mercy and could do pretty much what she liked papa does not feel she continued that you love him with the fullness and unreserve which would prompt you to have no concealment from him and to tell him everything freely and fearlessly as your most loving earthly friend next only to your heavenly father perfect love as we know casteth out fear your father loves you perfectly my darling but he does not feel as though you loved him perfectly in return if you fear him it is because you do not love him as he deserves and i know it sometimes cuts him to the very heart to think that he has earned from you a deeper and more willing sympathy than you display towards him oh ernest ernest do not grieve some one who is so good and noble-hearted by conduct which i can call by no other name than ingratitude ernest could never stand being spoken to in this way by his mother for he still believed that she loved him and that he was fond of her and had a friend in her up to a certain point but his mother was beginning to come to the end of her tether she had played the domestic confidence trick upon him times without number already over and over again she had wheedled from him all she wanted to know and afterwards got him to the most horrible scrape by telling the whole to theobald ernest had remonstrated more than once upon these occasions and had pointed out to his mother how disastrous to him his confidences had been but christina had always joined issue with him and showed him in the clearest possible manner that in each case she had been right and that he could not reasonably complain generally it was her conscience that forbade her to be silent and against this there was no appeal for we are all bound to follow the dictates of our conscience Ernest used to have to recite a hymn about conscience. It was to the effect that if you did not pay attention to its voice, it would soon leave off speaking. "'My mamma's conscience has not left off speaking,' said Ernest, one of his chums at Roughborough. "'It's always jabbering.' When a boy has once spoken so disrespectfully as this about his mother's conscience, it is practically all over between him and her ernest through sheer force of habit of the sofa and of the return of the associated ideas was still so moved by the siren's voice as to yearn to sail towards her 
and fling himself into her arms. But it would not do. There were other associated ideas that returned also, and the mangled bones of too many murdered confessions were lying whitening round the skirts of his mother's dress, to allow him by any possibility to trust her further. So he hung his head and looked sheepish, but kept his own counsel. "'I see, my dearest,' continued his mother, "'either that I am mistaken, and that there is nothing on your mind, or that you will not unburden yourself to me. But, oh, Ernest, tell me at least this much. Is there nothing that you repent of, nothing which makes you unhappy in connection with that miserable girl Ellen?' Ernest's heart failed him. "'I am a dead boy now,' he said to himself. He had not the faintest conception what his mother was driving at, and thought she suspected about the watch, but he held his ground. I do not believe he was much more of a coward than his neighbors, only he did not know that all sensible people are cowards when they are off their beat, or when they think they are going to be roughly handled. I believe that if the truth were known, it would be found that even the valiant St. Michael himself tried hard to shirk his famous combat with the dragon. He pretended not to see all sorts of misconduct on the dragon's part, shut his eyes to the eating up of I do not know how many hundreds of men, women, and children whom he had promised to protect, allowed himself to be publicly insulted a dozen times over without resenting it, and in the end, when even an angel could stand it no longer, he shilly-shallied and temporized an unconscionable time before he would fix the day and hour for the encounter. As for the actual combat, it was much such another wurra-wurra as Mrs. Allaby had had with the young man who had in the end married her eldest daughter, till after a time, behold, there was the dragon lying dead, while he was himself alive, and not very seriously hurt, after all. "'I do not know what you mean, Mama," exclaimed Ernest anxiously, and more or less hurriedly. His mother construed his manner into indignation at being suspected and being rather frightened herself, she turned tail and scuttled off as fast as her tongue could carry her. "'Oh,' she said, "'I see by your tone that you are innocent. Oh, oh, how I thank my heavenly Father for this! May he, for his dear son's sake, keep you always pure. Your father, my dear,' here she spoke hurriedly, but gave him a searching look, "'was as pure as a spotless angel when he came to me.' like him always be self-denying, truly truthful both in word and deed, never forgetful whose son and grandson you are, nor of the name we gave you, of the sacred stream in whose waters your sins were washed out of you through the blood and blessing of Christ, etc. But Ernest cut this, I will not say short, but a great deal shorter than it would have been if Christina had had her say out, by extricating himself from his mamma's embrace and showing a clean pair of heels. As he got near the purlieu of the kitchen, where he was more at ease, he heard his father calling for his mother, and again his guilty conscience rose against him. "'He has found all out now,' it cried, "'and he is going to tell mamma, and this time I am done for.' But there was nothing in it. His father only wanted the key to the cellaret, then Ernest slunk off into a coppice or spinney behind the rectory paddock, and consoled himself with a pipe of tobacco. Here in the wood, with the summer sun streaming through the trees and a book in his pipe, 
the boy forgot his cares and had an interval of rest without which i verily believe his life would have been insupportable of course ernest was made to look for his lost property and a reward was offered for it but it seemed he had wandered a good deal off the path thinking to find a lark's nest more than once and looking for a watch and a purse on battersby piewipes was very like looking for a needle in a bundle of hay besides it might have been found and taken by some tramp or by a magpie of which there were many in the neighbourhood so that after a week or ten days the search was discontinued and the unpleasant fact had to be faced that ernest must have another watch another knife and a small sum of pocket-money it was only right however that ernest should pay half the cost of the watch this should be made easy for him for it should be deducted from his pocket-money in half-yearly instalments extending over two or it might be three years in ernest's own interests then as well as those of his father and mother it would be well that the watch should cost as little as possible so it was resolved to buy a second-hand one nothing was to be said to ernest but it was to be bought and laid upon his plate as a surprise just before the holidays were over theobald would have to go to the county town in a few days and could then find some second-hand watch which would answer sufficiently well in the course of time therefore theobald went furnished with a long list of household commissions among which was the purchase of a watch for ernest those as i have said were always happy times when theobald was away for a whole day certain the boy was beginning to feel easy in his mind as though god had heard his prayers and he was not going to be found out altogether the day had proved an unusually tranquil one but alas it was not to close as it had begun the fickle atmosphere in which he lived was never more likely to breed a storm than after such an interval of brilliant calm and when theobald returned ernest had only to look in his face to see that a hurricane was approaching christina saw that something had gone very wrong and was quite frightened lest theobald should have some serious money loss he did not however at once unbosom himself but rang the bell and said to the servant tell master ernest i wish to speak to him in the dining-room end of chapter forty recording by rhonda fetterman